Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Tajik Authority's record on respecting human rights and media freedom and the rights of human rights defenders has been grim for some time. But after the government sent in security forces in May 2022 to stop peaceful protests in Tajikistan's eastern Gorno-Badakhshan Autonomous Oblast, and violence broke out, the campaign against journalists, activists, and rights defenders intensified. On July 4th, the UN issued a press release urging Tajik authorities to, quote, show a genuine commitment to improving the situation of human rights defenders in the country and express concern about convictions, unquote. To discuss all this, I am joined by Mary Lawler, UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders and one of the experts who took part in preparing the UN press release. Ms. Lawler visited Tajikistan late last year to visit the situation for herself, and thank you very much for joining me. First, could you describe for our audience what has been happening in Tajikistan recently that, that especially caught your attention? Well, as you know, my mandate is a special rapporteur on the situation of human rights defenders. I'm mandated by the UN to investigate and make recommendations on the protection of human rights defenders. I carried out a country visit last year and was really appalled to look at the horrible injustice being done uh, to human rights defenders who are peacefully carrying out their legitimate work on behalf of others in line with the UN Declaration on Human Rights Defenders. So we had a number of cases that we wanted to follow up on after the after the visit. So uh, some of them we had difficulty in getting consent for because people are terrified and w- are afraid of backlash. But we did write to, just lately to the Tajik government on nine human rights defenders who have been imprisoned in Tajikistan for quite long sentences. In fact, uh, some of them are very lengthy. Uh, thank you. And and um, if we could just talk a, a little bit about, the, you know, to get the time frame on this, um, this all started, I mentioned that there was violence in Gornobadakshan in, uh, in May 2022. But so really the time frame I'm looking at is like the last 14 or 15 months. Would you say there's a, there's a, uh, an unusual amount of activity in detaining people and imprisoning people in that 14-month period? Yeah. Well, uh, in the communication that we sent, we did a timeline for each of the defenders that we took up. So as you said, it all started in May. And then you had the situation where defenders were, were lifted and um you know uh, the, right from the get go uh, the the trial process was deeply flawed there were you know the there weren't fair and public hearings by competent and independent and impartial uh, um courts um and in many cases there were no lawyers and some cases were restricted as uh classified, I should say, as secret. So the process went on throughout the year after the original uh, May arrests and then the charging. And all the charges are related to the kind of um, uh, subversive terrorists going against the Constitution, all these kind of security-related charges which the government have decided to use on these uh, human rights defenders. 
And it, a lot of the cases have been, uh, as recently as March, uh, some of them are still being appealed. Um, not only, in, you know, these people shouldn't be in prison anyway, but we have real concerns about their health. We have concerns about, as I said, the complete lack of independent fair trials. And we also have concerns about torture in the case of three of them. And um, we also have concerns about, in, um, in, um, what do you call it, enforced disappearance, because s- certainly three of them were not, uh, were not, their families didn't know where they were immediately after they they were arrested for some time. So that, that really, in international law, that constitutes uh, forced disappearance. And then there was also uh, uh, some attacks, you know, which on the defenders and in, in, in a couple of cases, which were dismissed as hooligans, brought to trial, as not, not brought to trial, but uh, the attackers were charged with hooliganism instead of uh, the more serious attack on journalists doing their legitimate work. Uh, thank you, and you know, I want to I want to get to this or keep on this point for one second. Um, you know, Tajikistan, of course, borders Afghanistan. They have had incidents of terrorism in, uh, in the past, but but these people that have been arrested, uh, you know, you've seen some of the uh, reports about this stuff. Is are any of them? Was there any hint that any of these people actually could have been considered legitimately uh, extremists or terrorists? No, I mean, not from our investigation and not from the detailed research. You you will remember, I went to Tajikistan uh, late last year, which was November, and it has taken us from November to now to verify, to research all these cases. So we're fairly convinced, I mean, we are convinced, that these are legitimate and peaceful human rights defenders. I do think the Tajik government is paranoid about security because of the border with Afghanistan and I fully understand that it came up a lot with my in my um, discussions with uh, Tajik government officials um, and uh, I can understand that but that in no way allows you to break international law and just put away people that are perceived to be anti-government and to be working for minorities or unpopular issues that challenge the government's power and challenge the complete stranglehold that the government and the president in particular has over the Tajik population. Okay, thank you. Um, and and you, you were out there. Um, did you have any access to any of these people or their families? I mean, you mentioned that people are terrified of the government and don't want to talk too much. But, uh, you know, you being an official from the UN, uh, were you able to speak with any of the, um, the people who have been imprisoned or with their immediate family members? We yes we we spoke uh, well we spoke to defenders who weren't in prison but we had to speak to them secretly. Um, uh, we also spoke. We asked for a meeting with Dalar uh, Momali and Abdullah Garbati, and we did get we did get to see them in in the uh, where they were being detained. The Tajik. Uh, uh, security wanted to stay in the meeting with us, but I said no, so they left. And um, it was heartrending. 
to to talk to these two young men. Dallar, I understand he had just one other brother who died and his mother is in a terrible state because she's afraid of what will happen to him, you know, that he might die because he's had health issues in the past. And Abdullah uh, Garbati, the other guy that we saw, he had just been uh, uh, detained one week after his baby was born. And, you know, their health conditions, I mean, to listen to them coughing. And, of course, they're terrified of TB in the in the prison. And um, to listen to them and to see the condition of their skin uh, was horrendous. And they were completely and absolutely distraught. So, yeah, that was awful. We did try to meet with, I asked for a meeting with Ulfa Tonum Mamad Shoeva and and also uh, Manu Checker, Kolik Nazarov, but uh, that was denied. Uh-huh. And I know we're running short on time, but I, I'm curious about what your reaction is with the Tajik government. I mean, in the past, there have been UN working groups on arbitrary detention who have sent recommendations to the Tajik government, which they're actually supposed to respond to, uh, but they haven't done it. Now, you, you've raised some of these concerns with Tajik officials. Um, have they? Have you seen them taking any actions based on your recommendations? Well, it's a bit early days yet because they get 60 days to respond to this communication. The one positive thing I suppose I saw was uh, having seen those two men in such poor health, I did ask the general in charge of the prisons to um, uh, to send in uh, uh, the medical, the doctor, to, uh, uh, to examine the people in that, in that place. And I got confirmation that a doctor had, in fact, been allowed, uh, not been allowed, but a doctor was sent in. But, you know, it, the problem is everything, there's no transparency. Everything is secret. Um, people talk out of both sides of their mouth. Uh, by that, I mean, you know, they say the right, the right things. Um, and, uh, but obviously, we know it's a completely different picture. I would be hoping, because I will be presenting a report on Tajikistan to the UN Human Rights Council next March uh, with the findings of the visit, and that will be a public report. And it will be, uh, as I said, when I present my report, it will be one of the reports that I present, and there will be dialogue with the with the Tajik, uh, per, uh, the Tajik ambassador. I would still hope that maybe some of these people might be, um, their conditions might improve or there'll be some progress in their cases before um, March. If if the Tajik, and it's a huge if, if the Tajik government are committed, as they say, to, uh, you know, to working with the UN, to um, protecting uh, human rights, and to acting in an honorable and fair way. Okay, thank you. Um, do you still have, are you still in contact with anyone in Tajikistan? Do you get updates on the situation from people? Well, of course, we had to get updates on the situation for, for all these cases, but I am limited, as I said, to just the uh, protection of human rights defenders. 
So, uh, and it is, it is extremely difficult to get information, as you know yourself, from, from Tajikistan. But we, we try to stay, we try to maintain conduct, contact. And certainly at the time of the writing of this communication in April, we had been in touch regularly, um, on and off between our, the visit end, which was, uh, December and, uh, the end of March before we drafted this communication, which is really very substantive. Okay, and then last question, and I'll also give you a chance to to make any comments you want uh, that we might have missed something because I know you're pressed for time again. But, but, but my question is, you know, I saw this press release, and and I don't remember uh, so many so many uh, officials from the UN being involved in releasing something like this. Is this a special? Is such a special case? I mean, you have a whole list of people who are the special rapporteur for different sections of uh, society. Um, is this is this unique? Well, I'll tell you, I deliberately asked some of the other uh, rapporteurs to join me on this um, communication and press release. And what that means is they all get a chance to input. Some of them, obviously, they we, we, we all have our own area. But in some cases, of course, it, uh, it uh, intersects with other people, like, for example, the rapporteur on, on lawyers and judges. So, um, there's a number of lawyers who are human rights defenders in this um, in this communication, and also the you know there are people like uh, the special rapporteur on countering terrorism because we see all these charges, these fake charges that they put against them are all in the name of security and calling them branding them the next best thing to a terrorist. Uh, so where and torture the special rapporteur and torture because we know there's been a couple of cases there where defenders have been tortured. So, so I was hoping that by doing this, uh, it would strengthen our appeal to the Tajik government. Is normally you uh, normally you would not get as many rapporteurs. Uh, because uh, it does slow down the process because everybody has to input. Um, and sometimes that's not, um, time-wise, that's not a great thing. But because this was such an important communication and it was so important to get the full, I suppose, weight of those rapporteurs who's, who have a mandate which intersects with mine in relation to the treatment of these uh, human rights defenders, uh, I, I asked them. So that's how it occurred. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, and then, you know, again, we got, you have three minutes. Uh, any any um, rec- Anything you want to say to the audience, recommendations or, or organizations you want to cite as being helpful, particularly non-UN organizations that have helped out with this research or in the campaign to try to get these people out of prison? Well, I'm afraid I, I couldn't be talking publicly about uh, the sources because that might also um, endanger them. All of our sources were mainly people within uh, Tajikistan. But what we are looking for, we want information, the factual and legal basis for the arrest, detention, charging and sentencing of these human rights defenders. And also, why were the cases, some of them classified as secret? And why were the, uh, some of the trials um, uh, closed to the public where it wasn't, um, you know, where it, where it was applicable, you know, because they weren't all supposed to be. 
And then how do these uh, this, this, uh, arrests and charging, uh, how do they comply with international law? And then I will, we want to know about, has there been any investigation into the enforced disappearance of uh, three of them, Mr. Sabiov, Mr. Kotobov and Mr. Jumaev? And then when it comes to alleged torture and ill-treatment, has there been any investigation into that of the uh, ill-treatment and torture apparently suffered um, or allegedly suffered by Dalar Bobiev, Abdusatar Korobov and Ulfatonum Mamad Shueva? And then there was a physical attack against uh, Mr. Avadmad Gurbatov as well. So we need, you know, there are standards um, there's a, a manual on effective investigation and documentation of torture and other cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment of punishment. And, and the, the Tajik government is supposed to follow that. And then we're very concerned about the health of pretty much all of them, you know, because the conditions are terrible, their health is declining and there isn't adequate medical attention and even food. Uh, relatives have to bring in food and sometimes they don't have food. But I was told by one of the uh, defenders I visited, like whoever gets food, they share with everybody else in the cell. So um, so these are all the kind of questions that we we've had for we have asked the Tajik government. We are awaiting their response. And also, I mean, really, human rights defenders should be able to operate um, legitimately uh, in Tajikistan for peacefully expressing uh, their opinion and working on the rights of other people. And freedom of expression should never be criminalized when it comes to human rights defense. Okay, well, great. Thank you very much. That was Mary Lawler, your rapporteur on human rights defenders. I appreciate you taking time to be with us today, and I wish you a good weekend. And join me. For the second half of the show to discuss this uh, is Nizila Kanea, UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Religion and Belief, and one of the experts who took part in preparing the UN press release. Ms. Kanea visited Tajikistan in April to visit the situation for herself, and thank you very much for joining me. First, can you describe for our audience uh, what's been happening in Tajikistan recently that especially caught your attention that prompted this press release? Uh, thank you very much, Bruce. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your program. Uh, and thank you for your listeners for their interest. To be very, to be very frank, um, this had been an outstanding request by the previous, uh, my predecessor, the previous special rapporteur on freedom of religion or belief, and the visit hadn't been able to take place because of uh, the COVID situation. And um, some twenty years ago, um, the special rapporteur on freedom of religion or belief at the time, the late Asma Jahangir, had visited. Tajikistan. So if I give a longer term perspective, um, the mandate has long shown an interest in Tajikistan and the situation of freedom of religion or belief. But indeed, there have been incidents and events that made that more acute. And we were very pleased that this meeting was facilitated and we were able to meet, uh, go there in April and meet with civil society and government authority alike. Uh, thank you very much. And could you give us a little more information on your visit in April? I mean, who, um, some of the people you met with and, and what you were 
uh, looking at, especially when you were out there in Tajikistan, obviously religious uh, matters and uh, matters of belief. But um, could you give us a little more specifics on that? Certainly. So the mandate is on freedom of religion or belief. That's the right of everyone to hold a religion or belief of their choice, which of course includes change of religion or non-religion, and to be able to manifest it not only uh, alone, uh, but along with others as well, and not only in private, but also in public. Teaching, observance, uh, practice, uh, and education are just some ways that we might see manifestation of freedom of religion or belief, but human rights law leaves that quite open as to how people wish to manifest, including in public and with others. So Tajikistan is curious because when we visit some countries, and this mandate has existed for some 37 years, when we visit some countries, we're particularly concerned about religious or belief minorities or non-believers. In Tajikistan, of course, I was interested in that, and you'll see from the preliminary um, end of mission statement. So there'll be a fuller report to the Human Rights Council in March next year. But even in that preliminary um, uh, end of mission statement, we, of course, are concerned about religious or belief minorities in Tajikistan. But with Tajikistan, it's curious that the space, even for the majority, the Muslim Hanafis, is very highly regulated. And this has serious implications on their ability to manifest religion or belief. Just some headings there are... Uh, women do uh, do not uh, are n- are not welcome to be able to worship in mosques. Um, children cannot go to mosques. Religious education is highly regulated, and then of course for religious or belief minorities, it's regulated, or it has a disproportionate impact. Even if we're talking about the same restrictions on religion or belief, it has a disproportionate impact on minorities, uh, because for example, there, there needs to be a registration of religious or belief um, minorities. Their 68 communities are registered, but they need to give annual reports. Their financial transactions need to be reviewed. Uh, There have been communities that have been registered and then deregistered, the Jehovah's Witnesses being a prime example. Their literature needs approval. Religious education is also restricted for them. And of course, the Ismailis also needs um, some attention in and of itself because of being such a large minority and the uh, the inter you know interrelationship of minority status and ethnic status so uh, and belief status rather so religion belief and minority status um thank you and can we talk just a little bit more about the Pamiri community because several of, the, of their activists and, and journalists were named in this UN press release too um could you speak a little bit about uh, their case um, explain to our audience what's happened with them. I mean, your visit was certainly well-timed uh, for, for their purposes, I imagine. Um, yes, there were certainly events happening around us. Uh, of course, we reached out to, uh, met with all the authorities uh, that we had requested to meet, barring national security, and we were able to meet with civil society, sometimes uh, online uh, and also in person in when we were in Tajikistan. Uh, we were able to visit uh, Gabao, and um, that was between the 15th and 18th of April. As far as I understand, it's the first time a UN Special Rapporteur has been granted that extra permission. You know, you are permitted to go to the country, but an extra permit is required to go to Gabao. And we're the first um, Special Rapporteur, the first mandate that was able to visit. Unfortunately, though, visits with the provincial authorities was not facilitated, or it was delayed 
to such an extent that we had to return because we had other meetings back in Doshambe and needed to have the end of mission press press release and press statement uh, before Eid hit on Friday. Uh, and that was a day earlier than had previously been envisaged. So unfortunately, we didn't meet with the authorities there. But we had had enough meetings and had enough information about the, the situation that we, able, we were able to observe firsthand many of the restrictions and pressures there under. We heard immediately afterwards that uh, a large number of NGOs had been invited to a security meeting on that same day that we had been there and had been invited to self-liquidate, which of course is deeply concerning. Now, my mandate is narrower than my good colleague uh, Mary's mandate. It's about freedom of religion or belief. But of course, one way in which religious communities um, contribute to society, serve society, worship is through service. And uh, that might be through, um, you know, working with persons with disability, children, education, uh, empowering women, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So these NGOs also sometimes have uh, not only a, a function as, uh, you know, civil society actors, but also reflect a manifestation of religion or belief and are, you know, uh, another way in which a community such as the Ismailis uh, are wishing to manifest and practice. So to that extent, it is also deeply concerning to my mandate that that occurred. Okay, uh, thank you. And could you um, tell us, uh, there's a lot of information recently that that facilities and organizations that were founded or are certainly supported by the the Agahan uh, Development Network have been running into some problems out there now for the benefit of our audience. Uh, the Agahan is the leader of the Ismaili community uh, in that, that lives in the Gorno-Badakhshan Autonomous Oblast, uh, Gabao. Uh, and, and of course, he's been very um, generous financially with trying to fund projects out there. How is the situation with their organizations? Because we're hearing that they're Government seized some of them, uh, and, and you mentioned that they had liquidated all these different NGOs. And I imagine among those are probably some al- also some that are are funded by the Agahan. I have also heard those reports, uh, Bruce, and that's after the mission. But it connects with many of the issues we observed and will be reporting on, and already issued the press release on. So um, religious or belief communities must be able to manifest their religion or belief according to their own beliefs, according to their own practices, their own traditions. Of course, uh, traditions and uh, celebrations and practices have a, a, a law, a 2000 and, there's a 2009 law on freedom of conscience and religious associations. And there's also another law about the practice of traditions, which applies more broadly, but including to the Ismailis and the Pamiris. So, Manifestation in public, gathering together, practicing together, carrying out religious education activities, meeting for worship, these are all highly restricted um, more broadly and regulated more broadly in Tajikistan. But we also observed that uh, the Jamaat Khane, uh, we were not able to go inside. Uh, I understand that there are two Jamaat Khanes that are open throughout the country and just the you know the, the sheer size of Tajikistan means that it is impossible for um, Ismailis to be able to gather together even for the Friday prayer. Now, again, this also reflects more broadly that because of the regulation around the number of people that have access to a five uh, prayer a day mosque and a grand mosque, 
um, the spread of these mosques for everybody, but particularly for Ismailis that are at least 3% of the population. You know, it's impossible if there is two Jamaat Khan throughout a country as vast as Tajikistan for people to have access. And if that is important to the community, to you know, religious minorities, not only have the right to freedom of religion or belief, but also they have linguistic rights and cultural rights, and they should have the ability to educate their children. First of all, according to Article 18, in the um, the moral and religious education, parents have the the right to be able to bring up their children according to their religion or belief. And secondly, as minorities, minorities should be able to maintain their characteristics. So these restrictions bear very heavily on the continuity of the characteristics of minorities and also the ability to be able to manifest freedom of religion or belief. Okay, thank you. Um, I'd like to talk about the the words terrorism and extremism, because, of course, religious communities are especially vulnerable to these kind of charges, right? Uh, in, in theory, you could, you could hit anybody up with this. But, of course, one, if you're a worshiper, an adherent of a religion, then it's much easier to put this on you, uh, this brand you as an extremist or terrorist, even if it has nothing to do. Can you talk about how the Tajik authorities have used these laws against people inside the country? Uh, certainly, Bruce. We we know there's the 2020 law on countering extremism and the 2021 law on combating terrorism. The definitions really matter. Uh, first of all, there's immediately a concern that it, there is no mention of violent extremism. It's, it's not qualified by violent extremism, but uh, extremism itself. And then we need to be concerned about the evidentiary requirements for both that and terrorism and incitement, which itself carries um, criminal sanctions and, and fines. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a very slippery slope. If the lawyers are um, fear for their own uh, professional um, security, let alone their personal security, then there can't be due process for those that um, have been accused of extremism or terrorism. If I give a vivid example, in some of the meetings, I would ask about um, extremism and the response would be about terrorism, which sets off even more alarm bells because, you know, the question is about violent extremism or extremism, according to uh, the law of Tajikistan. But the response is about terrorism. So we've we've muddled one, we've folded one into the other, which carries even higher punishments. We were also able to visit a prison while we were there, it was uh, one of the newer prisons outside Doshanbe. And, you know, there's a, there's a new law on equality um, and discrimination. And in it, there is a protection for reasonable accommodation. And I asked can, if there can be a, an example given of how a prisoner had been reasonably accommodated. So the consideration might be given to their, um, their religion or belief and for example, uh, you know, the requirements to shave the beard uh, on entry and every week, uh, the ability to be able to, to pray, etc. But there were no examples that were, were, were shared. So I'm not sure if that law is actually being practiced or implemented. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm also curious, too, that obviously, you know, your office has been following events in Tajikistan very closely for, for a long time. Uh, and you've been following it certainly for, for some time. And as long as you've been in your position right now, you know, the fact that the U.N. decided to issue this press release at all and, and that they had imp- 
enlisted the help of so many different special rapporteurs in this report seem to indicate that they that something is more alarming now than was usually the case. Is there anything from from your side that you saw that's been more alarming recently, post May two thousand twenty two, uh, that that triggers you know some kind of alarm bells or something? The situation has noticeably deteriorated very recently. You know, some of them uh, I, I find it hard to. <laughs> to compare gravity of concern, uh, some of the issues have been ongoing. So the concern that minorities uh, and legitimate uh, religious manifestation can be restricted because of the allegation of extremism and terrorism so easily, or that incitement, the law against incitement, uh, was not informed by developments in the United Nations over 20 years. We not only have Articles 19 and 20 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. But we have instruments such as the Rabat Plan of Action, the 1618 Resolution of the UN Human Rights Council. So it needs to be informed also by interpretations and understandings that have come forward from the UN Human Rights Committee, for example, in General Comment 34. So there are these um, issues that arise under this triangular regulation, incitement, extremism, terrorism, there are many implications to manifestation of religion or belief, especially in public and with others that arise from that. And yes, they have been more grave in recent years, uh, in the recent year and a half, especially against uh, Ismailis and Pamiris, there seems to be a restriction of civic space that then has very serious repercussions on religious and belief minorities and religion or belief even for majorities. So, um, yes, um, and that press release came out uh, expressing concern by a whole host of mandate holders. Indeed, when freedom of religion or belief is restricted and so highly regulated um, that essentially what we remain with is um, a private religion or belief in the privacy of our home and alone. And that doesn't require a freedom. It's not really a freedom. Um, so when a manifest, when there is discrimination or targeting because of religion or belief, where there is suspicion and surveillance of religion or belief, then we are not only talking about Article 18 on freedom of religion or belief being restricted, but also freedom of association, freedom of assembly, uh, the right to due process, non-discrimination, equality before the law. And I could go on. Okay. Oh, thank you. And I promised that I would not keep you any longer than 20 minutes. And we're actually coming up on that right now. So I'm, I'm just going to ask if there's anything you think our audience uh, needs to know about the situation of, of uh, freedom of religion in Tajikistan uh, that you want to convey to them. Um, in the report, and uh, I echo it again, uh, I said that, you know, clearly the ambition to be able to uh, create an environment of tolerance uh, on grounds of religion or belief uh, is a noble one, is a is a positive one. But the price to be paid for maintaining an environment of tolerance should not be the the the, the strangulation of freedom of religion or belief, the the full scope of the enjoyment of freedom of religion or belief. And I encourage the authorities in the end of mission statements to to even if it is gradually to open up the space and to trust that the opening of, up of the space for the full enjoyment of freedom of religion or belief, including manifestation, including with others, including from minorities, that this is good for society, it promotes tolerance and diversity, rather than the fear that seems to exist that 
freedom of religion or belief is somehow dangerous uh, and um, bad for the country. I hope that, you know, Tajikistan has a fantastic history and diversity. Um, I enjoyed speaking Persian and Tajik uh, and really uh, the people were warm and hospitable. And I wish there was more trust in the society that uh, the freedoms to be enjoyed are not dangerous for, for the society. I hope that I see that more and more. And of course, I'm, as I expressed in every single meeting, I stand ready to, to support any efforts by government authorities or others to gradually open this space and to ensure enjoyment. Not only back to how the situation was some two or three years ago, but an open space for enjoyment, even improved. You know, already when Asma Jahangir uh, went to uh, Tajikistan and her report is available, you find that the recommendations were appealing for a, a, a space for the greater enjoyment of freedom of religion or belief. We're not in that environment anymore. It's much more restrictive. So we need to, you know, regain the space since then and also then improve on it. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you very much to Nazila Ghanem and Mary Lawler for being on the program. And uh, thank big thank you as always to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C., and a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we will be back next week. 